Welcome to Permaculture Freedom Podcast. My name is Cody and I'm your host. This is a show about cultivating freedom in our lives so we can be our best self. Freedom to live a beautiful, regenerative lifestyle that inspires our families, our friends, and our community. To transform our lives and reconnect to nature within. It's a revival of our roots. Roots that run deep into the earth. We were born for this time. We were born for this time. Thanks for joining me on this beautiful journey. Thanks for showing up. Permaculture really starts with an ethic. Earth care, that's care of the whole systems of Earth and species. So we actually devise model systems. Much of the design is drawn from nature. The end result that we aim for is to produce a system that's ecologically sound and economically profitable. It can get as sophisticated or as simple as you like. Hi, I'm Bill Mollison. I sometimes get very sick of bad news. And I think we should always look at things like that and try to turn it into good news. It's really easy to turn things around. In five weeks' time, this will be a nice set of potatoes. And for me, that's good news. In the late 60s, I was protesting social and environmental issues. But by the early 70s, I decided protest wasn't good enough. So I commenced designing gardens and positive design systems for human settlements. If people would only realise that everything they ever needed is right outside their door. All you really need is sun, plants, and keep your eye on the soil. And of course, if you've got plenty of fruit, you've got a lot of friends. This is my garden in the subtropics. From here to the equator, all the fertility is held in plants, not in the soil. Therefore, you have to make an extremely dense plant system, and the mulch and fertiliser we put on is all up in these plants. If we remove the plants, we have an infertile situation. In the tropics, plough agriculture is totally inappropriate for cropping. For a few years we can hold nutrient perhaps, but then it will go because it's torrential and hot rain. Even the silica leaves the soil. This causes more pollution in the streams, more rapid losses of nutrient, and it would be a very rare crop that we can grow in which we get the value of the minerals lost back in the crop. 
if you produce a system which doesn't destroy basic resources like soil and produces negligible pollution, then you have something that can go on forever and in which people can live in, for an indefinite period without destroying the earth. And that is the ultimate aim. And all, uh, all our sustainable systems achieve that aim. In 1972, there was no word in the English language for sustainable agricultural systems. So I coined the word permaculture from permanent and agriculture. And this is where the designer uh, turns into a recliner. You can rest in your garden. If you have it already well planted, you can pretend to be working in the garden and be invisible from the house. Now, only two years later, I am invisible from the house. And before, where they were biting ants by the thousands, there are now only worms. And in fact, I can recline here and be totally invisible from even 10 feet away. When you build a permaculture garden, nature doesn't contain such a garden. This is incredibly, this situation here, although it uh, has a configuration like a forest, is yet incredibly rich in functional plants, plants that have a good relationship to each other. It's also incredibly rich in yield, much higher than either any agricultural, monocultural situation or nature itself. So it's specifically built to serve the needs of human households and communities. with most of the garden perennial or self-seeding. Your work in planting is almost finished after a year or so and basically you're a forager, become a forager. As I a wide variety of food because a tremendous amount of tropical food is root crop for storage. Still, at most times of year, there's something good to eat. These gardens that we build in the tropics have very much a disorder of nature. This year I've been traveling, I don't have a lot of annual gardens. Okra. There's capsicum. Bush basil. Or basil. And you have a fairly good base for salads and, and main foods. There's probably about another 30 varieties that we could pick. I think there's 412 food plants just in this area here. If I look around, there's all the fuels and food that I could ever need. Fibres, mulch to do the garden, to extend the garden. All are here. It took me 30 working days, over three years, to achieve this. Once you've set up your own home, so you could leave it for two or three months and it just gets better, so that you're free to travel, then you can go and teach other people. And that's why we go to places like India and Africa, because a casual tourist look at those places will show that the houses there are not surrounded by all their needs. They're surrounded by croplands and they're surrounded by wastelands. A 
first course in Southern Africa was given in 1987 and two students came home and set up a magnificent training centre in Zimbabwe, the Fambids and I Centre, which contains most of the examples that Africa needs. Who is this one now? Whichever culture you're working with, you have a cultural method of work and a cultural method of learning. In Africa, everyone sings. They sing the work, they sing the learning, they sing the story from village to village. And to me, the sound of people singing while they work is, is Africa. We won't find that in Europe. Many Zimbabweans are poor farmers, so everything new we introduce has to be able to be made on the farm. But this heap went really quickly, Joseph. What are we doing? What are you doing? Yeah, I'm, I'm just making these holes uh, up the ground so that uh, when uh, the air, because the, uh, on the bottom we put some ah, branches yes. so that the air can uh, secrate uh, through, uh, the heat. through the heat. Yeah, when it heats up. Mm. You chaps work fast when you're singing. Yes, yes. Save no time at all. Yeah, Very sure. Very good. Yeah, okay, yeah. great. We'll enjoy it when singing and making the combos yeah, yeah, at the yeah. same time. Sure, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's not sure. Yeah. So this is like concrete. Yeah. So it's like concrete. And you moved in this half. Yeah. I find the students here are excellent and will make very good teachers. Nine months ago, I John and Deera, who was with me, is one of those teachers. He's very fluent, and I find he knows at least as much as I do about this sort of system. This part is a guild where everything uh, works together. And this winged bean releases nitrogen in the soil. And the banana dealer collects uh, nutrients, nitrogen from the, the soil released by, by uh, winged bean. Then we plant purple so that it can be a stake for these uh, creepers. And we are also trying to maintain a house for frogs, lizards underneath so that they can pick uh, the pests which come and eat some of the flowers and the, uh, the vegetables we have around. Everything in the system or everything in the ecosystem do help one another in another way or in another round. Yes, I, I'd like to say that this particular guild I've never seen. And the permaculture is about, not about which species firmly, but that you have a legume, a plant that uses a legume, a plant that repels pests. So we will see hundreds of different guilds made by students. And uh, they will find out which ones are very successful for them. And then that can become more of a standard and they can teach that one as a success. And what we try and do is make a lot of mistakes because that tells us which ones are good ones to use. So uh, you can never have a typical permaculture. Everyone you visit will be very different. So what we're teaching is not how to do it, but how to think about doing it. The centre has to be appropriate to small farmers everywhere.
One of the good ideas which allow efficient is made of local materials and can be made by people who are not real craftsmen. An extremely cheap beehive. This is a Toba beehive. These are widely used in Africa anyways. Very easy to handle yeah. and uh, cheap. cheap to make. Anyone can make them? Anybody can make them. You can see it's just an ordinary box. So as your honeycombs don't stick to the size right. of the hive. Right. See, so when you are cropping, when you are cropping, you don't have a problem. All you need to do is just lift yeah. the bar up and you lift it clean with yeah. the comb, with that shape of the box there. This is the, start, the starter. For the yeah, this is to start them off. You see, it's a bit of wax, which we use. We've got Mkwanda here who is expert. So it's quite simple indeed to, to work with. But these are African bees. These are killer bees. No, African bees are very lovely to work with. We, we are not dead. We are working with the bees, Bill. The Americans, the Americans would kill these killer bees. They're doing everything to stop them. Mm, very light. One of the very exciting things that has happened in Zimbabwe is that students from Fambids and I were invited to a local school to teach permaculture design. The children at St. Vincent's come from the farms and villages of this district. Many of their parents are farmers. That was January, yeah. You can see the whole thing improved since... They and the teachers and the headmaster, Mac, who is very enthusiastic, brought in seedlings and seed from their own gardens. Really starting to go with the rains. Yeah, right. The beginning That's of the rains. Nothing. How quickly did they get learning? About two minutes. We started here. Yeah. And we we went. Yeah. It's not just an exercise for the kids. In two years, the garden will be producing all their lunches. The students worked out their site design and began by putting in hundreds of metres of water harvesting ditches on contour. We dug a pit, you know, so yeah. that most of the water can collect in there and we put mulch in there. And these trees help to, su to support the tree which will then grow. Some are nitrogen fixers. Could you design this idea? Yeah. That makes the same thing in my hand. <laughs> That's why I recognise it. I think they all come to the same conclusion. Yeah. You throw your old school books in here, waste paper. <laughs> in Africa, we see most people as fairly healthy, with access to a pretty good education. But in densely populated India, we don't have that level of resources. The problem with the world may not be what it appears to be just too many people. It may be that all investment goes to further consumption and expansion of the cities without any expansion of the resources, the trees, forests, clean water and air that people need. Unless we stop, we'll uh, hit an absolute shortage of water, absolute shortage of air quality, absolute shortage of soil. The cities of India are at breaking point because they're being flooded with rural refugees. The resources could have been directed to strengthening traditional methods and the great variety in traditional crops which fed everybody in India.
But instead of that, resources have been directed to a green revolution type of export agriculture, which has actually taken away from real food for all of India. southern Deccan, about two hours by road north of Hyderabad. This whole area is covered with the flat, barren rock that's been uh, eroded over the years. And it was here that we gave the first permaculture course in India. And this place, which is the Deccan Development Society's headquarters, is where we started to spread permaculture in India. And one of my students was Dr. Venkat. <laughs> so, this is the first banana clump I planted here. And it was all like hard like this in those days. I remember the students helping me. We, we had to use picks here. I've always been amazed at the good bunches from this one. How much have we got off it? About uh, 80 to 90 bunches. In how many years? One and a half years. That's pretty good, isn't Very it? Good. Yeah, and we've got a lot of bananas off it. This was the first banana circle, I think, on yeah. the decade. <laughs> in, <laughs> India. in India. In India. In India. Yeah. First yeah, it stood up very well. Yeah. But uh, what I'd really like to do is have a look at the system you put in, because this is all we did in the first place. That's right. And uh, nothing in here be older than what? Two, two and a half years. Two and nothing, half years. nothing that you see here is more than two and a half years old. And another interesting part about what you are seeing in this particular area is that a foot below this is a bedrock of laterite. Towards the end of December 1987, this is how our farm looked like. No trees, not even shrubs, not even grass. I remember that all right. I remember using the picks, you know, we couldn't, yeah. you couldn't just plant we something. couldn't just plant at that time. And this is astounding. You know, jackfruit. Pomegranate here. Pomegranate here. Uh, guava. There's a cherry. Cherry, cherry there. A mango. Mango. God, the place is dripping with food here. <laughs> Bananas, coconut. It's, uh, I never thought this soil would produce like this. Yeah, that's true. Uh, in the summer of 1988, in this area, our well was, had gone dry. Now, we have now got about uh, 2,500 to 6,000 trees and shrubs and uh, any number of uh, ground cover. So that uh, you find here on this uh, farm, there is not one square meter of barren area. Something or other is growing. If no useful thing is growing, at least something which we call a weed is growing, but it is covered, the soil is covered. Now all this growth, results in harvesting the rainwater. Now, where will this rainwater go? It will definitely go into the well. So much so, this year, the level in our well after the monsoon is the highest ever recorded in its history. I think it must be mold. Yeah. And so this, this, under this, the soil gets very beautiful. The sweet potato. Sweet potato. You have enough here to set out thousands of them. 
Just about a foot with two nodes. We use it as a ground cover and uh, you get a good yield. You know, this is a fantastic mulch. Yeah, this is a fantastic mulch. You can use this instead of paper. This is, this is your paper, isn't it? Yeah, this is our paper. Well, you paper. Use paper. You yes. use yeah. this. Newspaper in India is not uh, feasible. Not common, not common or feasible. It's not good for toilet paper, is it? No, 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 no. no. <laughs> it has acid spicules in the leaf. True, this true, but we don't know the effect there. <laughs> <laughs> so, just been making a deposit on my cup of tea. Um, these toilets flash across to a dome, which is over a digester, which sends gas off, which goes to the kitchen, and we light the gas there and we make a cup of tea. So, if you want a cup of tea here, you have to make a deposit there. If you don't have enough people, you can put manure down this pipe and it goes down into the septic tank. After it's digested, then the manure sludge comes up here. And here it's full of yeast and bacteria and we can soak grass in it and feed it to cattle because it's got a lot more protein than it had originally. And uh, additionally, we can mix it one to 10 with water and put it on the garden uh, because there's no fertilizer loss in the digestion process. Decade Development Group have been a tremendous catalyst for change. They've set up women's sangams or councils in every village. So from Venkat's garden in Pastapur, the ideas are spreading throughout India with students. He alone is working with 120 villages in the Deccan, and the students in total would be working in more than a thousand villages. They have had a tremendous effect upon both the health of the people and their, their spirit, the way they feel about their lives. Until the Green Revolution, just a few years ago, all the plants in this garden would have been grown in the field. But then the fields have become monocultural. There are landlords are putting in single crops. There's no food planted in the fields for people here. So these gardens are really necessary. I went to the Deccan about three years ago when the drought was severe. People were selling or giving away their plough animals. Everybody was listless and sitting in the shade, just trying to survive until the rains came. So we had a great sense of urgency. We know that most of the emphasis has been on the green revolution of annual crops, and it just won't feed people in drought. They go in for cash crops like sugarcane, cotton, then uh, rubber, then tea, at the expense of their own food. That is, food has become a commodity now. And uh, if we want to build a sustainable system of food, we have got to reverse this trend. That is, take food out of the commodity market, make it a non-commodity. Not for export and not for market, but primarily for consumption. One of the things which we have got to go against the present agricultural system is the economic uh, stranglehold, you see, that the landlords have put on the poorer sections of the people and of the country. Mm -hmm. 
ਕਲ ਪਿਛਨਾ ਬੋਦਿਆਤੀ ਪਿਛਨਾ ਹੀ ਹੈਡ ਟੂ ਗੈਟ ਦ ਸੀਡ ਫॉर ਦ ਪੋਟੈਟੋਸ ਹੀ ਹੈਡ ਟੂ ਪਰਚੇਸ ਇਨ ਦ ਮਾਰਕੀਟ ਦ ਸੀਡ ਫॉर ਦ ਸ਼ੂਗਰ ਕੇਨ ਐਂਡ ਹੀ ਹੈਡ ਟੂ ਬਾਈ ਦ ਫਰਟਿਲਾਈਜ਼ਰਸ ਐਂਡ ਆਫਟਰ 올 ਦਿਸ ਇਨਪੁਟਸ ਹੀ ਹੈਡ ਬੋਰੋਡ ਅ ਲੋਨ ਆਫ 4000 ਰੁਪੀਸ ਫਰਮ ਏ ਗਰੂਪ ਇਨ ਦ ਵਿਲੇਜ ਬਟ ਦ ਗਰੂਪ ਚਾਰਜ 4 ਰੁਪੀਸ ਪਰ ਮੰਥ ਪਰਸੈਂਟ that is it works out to 48% per year so after paying back all these things he was not left with anything whatsoever he has got a 10 year old boy who was sold to a landlord as a bonded laborer for a loan of 1400 rupees that's all that is his life life as cheap as that so we also paid back the 2400 rupees to the father who paid it back to the landlord and the boy started working here he is excellent very intelligent sharp and uh, possibly he is going to be the first permaculturist of this village in his own language he will be able to practically lay designs for farms we are confident about that and coming from people like him it will be much more effective rather than coming from people like me bhai kada chetlu vertamu ante my amma ne pettundi annadi dunnan ku panta inta vandale mari ante panta kem gaadu chetlu he had a talk with his parents and they say that they will have to continue you see the present question of sugar cane and other cultivation which they are doing for their livelihood but then they have absolutely no objection for trees to be incorporated on the farmland and uh, he has said you see that we will plant the trees in such a design that it will not interfere with your tilling with your plowing and with your harvesting activities em kasam sa thovudu malla chetlu vettude ekku chetlu he says that it's only in the initial stages there is excess work you see because most of the things we are going is for trees so in the beginning there will be extra work and also he puts the question without working how can we live in the first year the village uh, just ignored me and uh, they just didn't know that there was something going on here they were not uh, thing but this year for example quite a good number of marginal farmers have been visiting on their own on their own and first they just go around the entire farm and see what are all the things that are growing then they come back and tell us well uh, there seems to be something worthwhile doing then they say we are faced with the problem that our livelihood depends upon our present method of food production then we tell them that look you don't have to stop totally what you are doing now but starting with say 10% of your land you get into permaculture principles and design functional design then add on every year about 10 or 15% and in the course of about 5 or 7 years you will have passed through the transition from an unsustainable system to a sustainable system which will definitely keep you above board and you will not have to start this is edible and when the seeds are boiled and eaten just like water chestnut yeah that's nice it's a magnificent lot of beans they're everywhere when you look at it like yeah you'll be able to eat them from this year on or not. You find that there's 
clear potential that uh, we don't have to starve before we right. die. No problem. Absolutely. <laughs> we don't have to starve. So here we'll leave Venkat in his Garden of Eden in the tropics. We know we can turn the Indian wastelands back into food forests. But next week we'll look at deserts, and that's a much tougher proposition. Permaculture really starts with an ethic, earth care, as care of the whole systems of earth and the species. So we actually devise modal systems. Much of the design is drawn from nature. The end result that we aim for is to produce a system that's ecologically sound and economically profitable. It can get as sophisticated or as simple as you like. has a unique characteristic and here in the Sonoran Desert it's a large tree cacti and here it's a saguaro cacti a little further south it's a cardon a much larger cactus than the saguaro and all of these cacti originally grew in forests forests that were usually up about as high as the first limbs of the cacti and the saguaro can't continue to exist without a forest around its feet it's because the Young cactus can't exist in open desert, such as we see around us. It has to have shade. So the swara are expected to last perhaps another 40 years, and then they'll be gone too. So the solitary saguaro, standing on its own in the sand, has become almost a symbol of desert. Instead, it should be a symbol of our stupidity in not taking care of the total environment. Like vast areas of America, this is part of the Great Dust Bowl of the 1930s, when most of the soil blew away. Between 1930 and 1935, Franklin Roosevelt had three million Americans out with 
supervisors and engineers repairing America. And it's the uh, first time in American history and the last time. It's also one of the very rare times in the history of the world that anybody in charge of a country has put the people of the country to work to repair the damage. They built hundreds of miles of earth banks which held up the runoff water long enough to settle out the silt behind them and for some water to soak into the ground. And this is called swaling. And these swales were made by horses and scoops and men. And um, today we have bulldozers, but we don't do this repair work on country. Uh, it's very rich in the swales, both the soils and the trees. Now we'll go down and have a closer look at that. In the swale there's a, a green cover of herbaceous material that covers up all the weeds and, and uh, it makes a sort of a sandwich of weeds and silt that builds up slowly. This is about 60 years old. These were built by engineers for purely physical reasons to stop the gully erosion uh, extending and occurring. But nature's taken it over and we could have planted it with pomegranates, fig. You know, look in the soils of these swales there. Moist, they're pretty rich with organic material and a good, they've got a good silt in them. And you just, today could plant them with seeds that will wait for rain. So that's the sort of thing we could do right through this old swale system. And there are thousands of miles of them in the United States. I first found these old swales in 1986-87 and I'd been putting in hundreds of miles of swales but I couldn't have seen the swales that I've been putting in uh, in 60 years time and it's just tremendous confidence uh, that you get from finding these old structures that have never been looked at, they've never been repaired and they've never been noticed by the population and find they've been quietly working for 60 years without any maintenance. Uh, I think it's marvellous, fantastic, actually. They didn't make any mistakes. They uh, they did almost everything right. They had a lot of good hydrologists, good good engineers, and good common sense, practical people working for them. It's a shame that modern nations can't turn all their people out to repair their country today. God. be really uh, fascinated with that because the idea of integrating the tribal and wildlife parks is, is very dear to all of us, as, as you know. We'll be doing that in Kenya in September, by the way. Okay. In the West, we've been accustomed to reducing areas to desert and then moving our operations elsewhere. But in Africa and in the Kalahari, there are several language groups for whom this desert is their home. So quite obviously, this is an area of great need. It's also a very tough proposition for us to tackle. I've been invited here by some of my student teachers who are Tswana people to come into the desert and see some of their tribal students at work. And also bringing some new foods in because there are more and more people and we need to feed more people. We will have success because we keep trying, a few of us will have success and then we must teach other people.
The people here were hunter-gatherers, and at one time the desert was thick with game. Cattle have destroyed 60% of the food plants they used to gather. There are very few left indeed. As for the game, the EEC demanded that fences be put across the Kalahari for production of beef. This has successfully killed off most of the migratory animals. So with the death of those animals and the death of their plants, people have to take up gardening, something very unused to. In order to address the problems of the remote area dwellers, we've been invited here by the tribal people and the Hansi District Council to see students and teachers at a place called Fretalakta, where gardening is just beginning. In every compound are the animals that were brought in for shelter from lions or from predators the night before. Previously, all the compound and the fencing material was built out of trees, which are now gone. So the first request of any group in the Kalahari will be for barbed wire and for gates, because there's many miles before we come to good tree country. So we're showing how to adapt local material to new conditions. Here um, we're demonstrating you don't have to cut down a lot of trees to make the walls of the pen. It's a natural goat pen in the middle of a standing clump and where there is no trees in the circle, the roots are cut below the ground. So you can use living trees to fill the gaps. And uh, it's already quite fertile inside. By the time the goats have been in here for a while, it'll be more fertile. And then we can use it for a garden. And so what we're teaching here is growing, growing your goat pens, not cutting down the environment and making a lot of yards. A well-fenced family compound takes just over a thousand large acacia trees from the desert and that means that much of the trees around the settlements are removed simply for fencing. In about 20 years the termites eat them off and you have to go look for more trees but there may be no more trees. So the introduction of just one species here, Euphorbia tiricale, which are close set as cuttings, stop all cattle and goats but are not eaten by them. This is a great benefit because there's no longer any need to cut the trees. Six months ago, we gave a course to the women of East Hanahai, a hundred kilometers away, and I was very interested to see how their garden was getting on. Although East Tehanahai is extremely dry, 300 people live here. Therefore, any strategy, no matter how small, that we can use to catch water is of great use.
Well, this is a runoff pan made of concrete and the water, the rain comes down and down this pipe and into the underground system where it won't evaporate. And we used exactly the same system to set up wells in the desert for people or for game animals, quail or guinea fowl. We built a pan system here some months ago, costing only $200. And it enables us to get a garden going and seedlings watered. Here we are in the women's garden, it's just beautiful. The beds are raised so the salt will go down through the soil. The seedlings are in here and there's a lot of seedling onion. And under here, which look like little huts, there's actually young seedlings for the winter green. So they're fully shaded in here. Then they're growing very well. In the center of this little mandala bed is a acacia tree. It will provide nitrogen for the beds and shade. And all the natural vegetation has been left in this garden. It doesn't look bare and barren. And, and it provides the material for the shade houses. And it's just uh, great, actually, considering only November that they got their first course. They've used exactly the same techniques of little shade huts to get their fruit trees going. And this will improve the vitamins in their diet. I like this garden very much. No, I think it's very good. It's very hard conditions. Once a group of women are well organized in the village, they're the best source for us to work with. Their information is the best, and they are the most motivated. And they prepare progress reports and bring them in for discussion and meetings. The women's report specifically requests help in dealing with the new types of vegetables. In response to requests like this, Dorothy Inderbar, one of my first students and now a teacher, has brought some of her friends and they've come up to show these women at Frotalakta precisely what you do with the vegetables grown in the Kalahari Desert and how to make the best nutritional use of them. From our inquiries we found out that people in this district were not used to using melons the way we are going to use it today. The good thing about it is that no part of the melon is thrown away. Right from the stalk, while it has green leaves. We use the green leaves for vegetables, and then we use the young melon for eating. And then when the melon is mature, it's used, as I've described. So this is completely new to them, making porridge from the melon pulp. Melon pulp with sorghum makes a marvelous porridge. No other water's needed. My African students were amazingly efficient in becoming teachers because in Botswana there is a real need for food and nutrition. We'd had seven years of drought and everybody was beginning to starve and with real need human beings organize themselves and respond very quickly. We were very nervous and the first day was a real hell. We thought the sun would never set. One thing we are happy about is that most of our past participants 
are very active in permaculture and especially the Eastern high people they are looking very successful. The nervousness of the first course is gone and now we feel confident to face future courses. finished, the traditional songs and dancing that everybody enjoys can begin. People imitate the hunt and younger people learn about hunting from the stories, the songs and the dance. So the system spreads itself and is adapted by each group to their particular needs. I can come back as a visitor and I know that when I go to the groups that they've been teaching, I will learn a great deal more about permaculture than I know now. Whenever I'm flying over deserts, I look out the windows a lot. It's because I get a lot of inspiration from the ground patterns, the things I see down below. Here, looking down in Botswana, you see curious dots, and they're caused by a very important insect. Before I left Africa, I went to see an old student, John Turner, who has been studying the ecology of termite mounds. Southern African landscape is dotted with these termite mounds. It's a macrotermes and it's a compost building termite. It gathers the, and chops up the grasses. It removes all these grasses by the time the winter's over. Then it builds compost heaps inside the mounds and it seeds fungal spores into the compost heaps and it eats the mycelium of the fungi. But on these mounds, which are raised fairly high above the landscape here, a clay palm landscape of clay, grow all sorts of trees. Probably the best known is the mapani tree, very valuable tree for animal, for fodder. It produces extremely good wood. There's many other really useful berry trees, timber trees, uh, medicinal trees, dye trees, um, that are located yeah. here. And many of the farmers plant special crops on here. And of course they collect the flying termites and they're a valuable addition to diet. So you could say about the termite mounds in Africa, India, and all the deserts, is that they are islands of life and have a very important and unique place in the landscape. And we also know that they keep pace with the erosion processes. So they, in fact, the termite preserves the landscape. When we arrive back in Australia and look down at that landscape, we realise we've lost the intricate patterning of nature and we're looking at an idiotic patterning determined by machines. Here, we can no longer talk about the termites, they're long gone. We can no longer talk about the natural processes that restore the land. There are no natural processes on most of these fields. This is dry, flat land. We'll bring water into it, We'll grow a gigantic amount of crop and we'll turn it into desert. And when the problems occur, they're devastating. And here the problem is solved. In western central Victoria, everywhere we travel, we see dying trees and solid lands. Nature has rejected our simple solutions. 
somehow in pursuit of limitless food grain, we've created insane, boring landscapes without trees and without people and without anything of interest. There are hundreds of miles of these uh, unlined irrigation canals, canals throughout the irrigation areas and drains off those. And the potential evaporation here is about 18 feet. So as we put the water on these fields, the evaporation takes off the water and leaves the salt. But it also, the water floods down here and picks up further ground salts. So all in all, it's no wonder that in, uh, in these irrigation lands, the fields flood and salt very easily and rather quickly. As the salt exceeds 1% in soils, it's exuded as crystals wherever the soils start to dry out and you get a, a sparkling crystal forest of salt. The first inkling we had of the problem was in 1979. We didn't even have a map of the salt. That was very rapidly established with the aid of all the schools across Victoria. Here the students of Dimboola High School take their salt measuring devices into the local river for us in the middle of winter and they get a rude shock. There's a jiggle up and down. They're ready to take our first readings when they're steady. Well, it's actually surprising to see the salt that high. It's increased from a couple of months ago. Years ago it was just wasn't very salty at all and here you can if you get a mouthful you can really taste the salt. And I'm allergic to seawater. I come up with bumps, and when I go swimming in here now, I come up with those bumps, from just like seawater. So I can't go swimming in the river no more. Our data we're collecting today, along with schools from oh, roughly 500 or 600 schools around the state, all that data is being sent to the Rural Water Commission in Melbourne, and they'll in turn collate all the data and send it back to the schools in the form of maps. Yeah, I'm just trying to that's actually salt. Well, that's three times as salty as seawater, that region. Right. The channel water in this area isn't suitable for drinking. I mean, it's fine for animals or farm stock to drink. But uh, the town supplies roughly about 1,000 AC units, which is above sort of recommended health levels. Mm. Well, it's great that you're doing all that. And, that, and it's particularly good to students, I think, to see them and understand what's happening to them. So we know the intensity of salting. We know the extent of the problem. We know the rate of increase of salting in, the, in Australia, and it's enormous. And we know the only thing to do is to lower the water table. And we know the only way to lower the water table is to reforest the catchments. And we have a lot of trials out that will tell us what trees we can use in what areas of the catchments. Trees are effectively non-mechanical pumps. They can pump the water table down and with it drops the salt. But it's a matter of advancing from areas that are clean enough to hold trees to areas which are just beginning to salt. We can't plant the trees and pump down the water table and continue the irrigation system and expect the trees to survive. So we've got to make some sort of choice between irrigation and survival our survival. If you would like to see what these areas will look like in 10 years' time, we have to take it to Arizona, where in 1940 they irrigated cotton for the war effort. This is what you can do to a healthy desert. 
Once you've cleared it, mined it for cotton, salted it, abandoned it, and left it to blow away. This salt pan was a cotton field, irrigated cotton during the war. This was a mesquite tree, which would germinate about here somewhere, and this would all have been soil. The rate of soil formation here is very slow. It's a millimetre per thousand years, which is much slower than most areas. But it's dry and it's very flat, so that's understandable. The dust from the clay pan obliterated the roads and there were accidents. So uh, the Department of Roads and others drew small banks and sowed four-wing saltbush on them. What we see along here now is four-wing saltbush, but the mound is gone. It's blown away and it's also melted down, deflocculated because the soil is full of salt. However, it did stop the dust going across the highway. Beyond that, no attempt to rehabilitate the salt pan has been made, although it's possible to do so. The fact that the only rehabilitation we've attempted here is to protect the automobile says a lot about this society. We have the technologies to fix up and bring back into production a lot of eroded desert. We'll go and look at one of these techniques invented by Bob Dixon, an agricultural scientist. It's a great machine. Good to see you. Good. I've come to have a look at your machine, see what you're doing here. Get some explanations. It's a curious thing, isn't it? Yes, it is uh, quite different. Uh, it's, uh, pitters are fairly common, but this uh, does make pits. We refer to it as a land imprinter. Please drive that rubber tie. Uh, yes. Uh, these uh, angles are imprinting teeth. Uh, they uh, will make funnel-shaped depressions in the soil, which uh, will, in fact, funnel the rainwater and seed together so that you can take a little rainwater and get the seeds to germinate and to, to become established. People sometimes think that maybe it's, it'll make uh, rain. I don't claim that it's a rainmaker, but it's a rain stretcher. So this eight-pointed star turns out to be the ideal configuration. The importance of this design is the fact that it takes uh, not nearly so much weight to, to push the angles into the soil. Well, once the soil is pitted and the wind blows, 86% of all seed ends up in the pits, and that's in nature. But as well as the seed, little bits of manure, like rabbit manure and sheep manure, they all roll into the pits. And uh, so whether I put it in a pit or not, it'll get there in the first wind. It'll, most of that will get into the bottom of the pit. And then when it rains, then these pits will infiltrate as much as 15 inches of wet soil. And round them, you'll only get infiltration of a very little water. So you can see that they're totally beneficial for kicking life back into the desert. So this is a stark contrast. Yeah, this is the way it looked before it was imprinted. Just, yeah, uh, you like that? It's essentially barren, and, and where all the water either runs off the barren surface or, or evaporates. So 82, you imprinted. Just, did, did you see it at the time or not? Uh, yes, this was um, spectacular. Well. When rain uh, occurs here, it uh, obviously sees nothing but the grass, and and so the soil surface uh, remains open and receptive to uh, to rainwater, and you 
you can see that if the water is not lost by surface evaporation and runoff, it can grow a tremendous amount of vegetation. Somebody once said that man has left a desert in his footprints wherever he's gone. Well, I think you can see that in this case, uh, we, we created a beautiful prairie in the, in the footprints of a land imprinter. If we can use technologies to restore the present deserts to the original prairies that they once were, we can bring back the wonderful complex of animal species that once yielded so much from the prairies of North America and Africa. They were highly productive for protein and much more productive than the beef that succeeded them. And the beef, after all, were responsible for the deserts. If we can do that, and it is our duty, I think, to do it as stewards of Earth, then our grandchildren may be able to see something of the abundance that their great-grandparents encountered when they first came to those continents. Permaculture really starts with an ethic. Earth care, that's care of the whole systems of Earth and the species. So we actually devise modal systems. Much of the design is drawn from nature. The end result that we aim for is to produce a system that's ecologically sound and economically profitable. It can get as sophisticated or as simple as you like. Tasmania, if you find anybody else on a beach, you just go and find another beach. Oh, Daddy was a keeper of the Edison Light, played with a mermaid every night. They had children, one, two, three, a porpoise and a herring, and the other was me. Yo, ho, ho, the wind blows free, oh, for a life on the rolling sea. I was born in Stanley in Tasmania 63 years ago. It's a cold climate, and all my ancestors had come from cold climates. And it was there that I developed the ideas which became permaculture. It was there that I built the first models, and from there that I teach around the world.
I've been working for quite a long time in the rainforests of Tasmania and I slowly began to realise that their production could be far higher than that of any system that we had devised and it was from there that permaculture grew. It was putting a knowledge of the relationships between the plants and the animals into the situation of farming or food production. By 1978, the gardens that we'd constructed uh, had given us confidence that we could create um, forest systems, which were gardens. So I published a book then and three since. And then I started to teach in 81. That's just 10 years ago. And now those teachers are in their fifth generation. They're the uh, students of my students of my students and so on. I often sit here at home thinking of them, and just occasionally I decide to go and have a look at what they're doing. I think I'll do that now and see you later. San Juan Islands, not far from the Canadian border. And these islands were heavily glaciated not so long ago in the Pleistocene. So they're very bare on top, often they're made up of granite, unlike the mainland, and they have lakes and valleys and typical glacial landscapes. And we'll have a look at some of the action on the San Juans. One of my students was Joe Bullock. He's been developing a forest garden. Hey, Bill. Yeah, doing? I'm good. It's about six years ago you and the boys bought this area. Yeah, about six years. When was I here? Five years ago. Yeah, four or five, something like that. Well, things have changed, and uh, and you've had a long battle to find out what to do that works. Still finding out, I think. We're fortunate to be here on a fine summer's day, but here in winter oh, it can get yeah. very cold, oh, and heat is an invaluable resource. Nice, Joe. Yeah. Joe has wisely combined his kitchen with a greenhouse. It not only heats his house, but provides him with winter food. But Joe's developed other techniques to make the greatest use of the scarce heat resource of this area. Well, we've got a palm tree growing here, and if you just look at it, you might not think anything strange about that, but... Actually, palm trees aren't too common around here, and uh, we do get quite cold. We're uh, just a few miles from the Canadian border, and we can get some really cold winds and heavy snowfalls in the winter occasionally. What I'd like to demonstrate here is a lot of people think of rocky land as being non-agricultural land, but actually one thing that rocky land also has in great abundance is an accumulation of heat. And in a relatively cool summer climate like this, heat is often one of the most precious commodities to the grower of many, many things. So I think people in England and Scotland have long known this by planting things up against rock walls. But if you have land with rocky outcroppings, one might consider placing a heat-loving species close to the rocks in order to benefit from the additional heat they would receive. Joe and his brother Sam are putting in a 30-acre orchard, which will eventually become a food forest. 
As orchard plants can be expensive, Joe and his brothers have come up with some good ideas to use plants that already exist. We're in the midst of a native crabapple thicket here. That's Malus fusca. It has a big range all over the northwest of the United States. Normally, it's not considered to have much value to most people, although it was utilized by the Native Americans. However, I've found that you can graft the smaller trees. This tree is growing on a rocky, dry ridge, and it's never received any care from us except for the initial graft. As you can see, it's healed up real nice. Now, there's quite a difference in the two foliages of these two types, and if you look at it, the smaller leaf here with a cut edge would be typical of the wild tree, and this bigger, broader leaf is the grafted apple tree. It's thriving. And this year, for the first time, it has some fruit on it. This variety is called Irish peach. And what's even better, they're really good. I do this with a native species we have here, but it could probably be done with any type of wild apple occurring anywhere. Developing such a complex property can be a lot of work. You have to fertilize and weed and mulch. So they've employed a large labor force to help. Ah, a duck tractor. The ducks do the job of a tractor in their digging, fertilizing, and weeding. And not only that, the brothers enjoy the duck eggs. We all thought that chicken tractoring would be the way to go with some of these wet, fertile, fast-growing bottomlands. And we did a little with chickens, but we come to the conclusion that ducks are, are just a lot nicer animals to be around, nicer personalities, so... Chickens are good because they scratch things up, but in terms of being around one or the other, we prefer ducks. And all, another good thing about ducks is if they do escape, they're not quite as voracious when they get into the garden. Chickens, yeah, they quickly them. find your mulch. So. Yeah, they're mulch lovers. Yeah. Yeah. Ducks are real fun to watch and yeah. their families and the way they cohabitate with each other. Yeah. Poultry, ducks and geese can be an important part of any design. About 30 miles away from Joe's place in the Skagit Valley, I visited a farm and nursery where geese are employed by an old friend of mine, Anne Swartz. These are white Chinese geese yeah. and they eat all the grass species, they eat legumes, they eat chickweed. Mm -hmm. As a matter of fact, I couldn't farm without them. Uh, you, you mean you eat them? Sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> right about this time of the year when I don't want to feed them all winter long. So mainly they're used here for weeding? Uh, I have an acre and a half of potatoes, and they did all my weeding for me in the potatoes. Right. The eldest spotless. They did a really wonderful job. We mulch all the beds with the mm. compost, and then the geese come in and eat all the other grasses and weeds, and every once in a while I'll come in with a mower, but by and large the geese eat everything. So they're your main workers in, Absolutely. in your vineyard? In my in the nursery stock, in right. the raspberries, potatoes, strawberries, right. and uh, I use a very portable fence. And so wherever I want the geese, I just That's herd right. them around. Anne's also trained her dogs to get rid of the overgrown zucchinis, which are a problem for all home gardeners. Like most permaculture farmers, Anne's producing far more than she can use, so she has joined other local growers who have adopted a good strategy to sell their surplus product. Cascadian Farm buys strawberries and raspberries and several other kinds of fruit from probably better than 60 growers at this point. Hi, Simon. Simon, are you here? 
morning. I got 18 flats and about 350 pounds for you today. Great, come on up. Cascadians always try to pay a good bonus for organic fruit, and they've been more than willing to work with small growers, learning how best to meet no. the market. No, the, the quality's good and the flavor's good. Can never get enough pickers, but what else is new? So it's been very beneficial to uh, advance the profitability of small farms, but everything is packed and labeled under the Cascadian farm label. Arboreal or far north forest, uh, just below the high northern latitude of 45 degrees, but just north of the oaks on the coast and just south of the purely coniferous forests. It's noticeable here, as it is with all forests, that the forest depends on a fallen forest to grow itself, so that every log and every stump here, many of them are cut off stumps have cedar trees growing in them and berry bushes. And all these forests are the same, no matter whether they're northern or southern latitude. And then the main foods out of this forest for people and for a lot of animals are um, sugars, which are stored in the maples and the, and the saps of many of the deciduous trees, and uh, fungi. And there are at least uh, 40 species of fungi. This one looks as though it might make you hallucinate, but there are at least 40 edible species of fungi uh, throughout the forest. So uh, you'll find many of the animals are full of fungi in the winter and of course the people eat fungi in the winter. And the Indians cleared holes in this forest and cultivated nettles. And from nettles they made very fine silky cloth and they also ate, uh, the nettle was a green vegetable. Shropshire on Roman Bank and it's autumn or early winter really and uh, we've come to meet uh, Robert Hart who's developed a forest garden here over the last few years. Robert, pleased to meet you. <laughs> after a long time. Yes, after a very long time, nearly yes. 12 years. Will we have a look at this garden? Right, great. great. This garden is one of the oldest examples in Europe of how to go about consciously designing a forest garden. So this is my favorite fruit, actually. This one is? I, I consider this as nice as any tropical fruit. This is a universal pollinator. It's a golden hornet. Mm, crab, crab, which will pollinate any kind of ordinary apple. Mm, great, that's a useful thing. A very useful thing indeed. Yeah. Production of the temperate areas, because it is soft light, is much greater than the tropics. Is it? It is, and the is day it? length is much longer, as you realise. A cool area forest with clearings has a very complex series of levels, and this garden imitates that very well. That's basically, you know, the structure of the whole system. How many levels do you think? Sir? I reckon there are seven layers. There's the mm -hmm. high tree layer of trees that require light. 
This is an old pear tree that was planted 30 years ago, so that constitutes the canopy. Then there's the low tree layer, that is an apple on dwarfing rootstock, a shade-tolerant apple. Then there's the shrub layer, this is a red currant bush. Then this is the herbaceous layer comprising uh, apple mint. And uh, <coughs> this is the ground cover layer, that is a, a strawberry raspberry, a plant that spreads horizontally. Then there's the root layer, comprising plants that are grown for their roots alone. And then there's the vertical layer of uh, climbers, like raspberries and loganberries. Many of the herbs are fragrant herbs. Everyone knows that lavender, for instance, wards off clothes moths. And it's reasonable to suppose that aromatic herbs of that kind also ward off pests and diseases from neighboring plants. Yeah, that's great, isn't it? I mean, you get quite a lot of stuff in total. These gardens show the efficiency and stability of a forest, but was much better than the production of a monoculture farm. So between the tropics and the temperate areas, we use the same sort of principles both ways. Absolutely, yes, yes. lonely, dark and deep, and I have promises to keep and miles to go before I sleep. The woods may appear dark and deep, but they are in fact harvesting sunlight. They are the great reserves of the sun's energy on earth, converting it to timber and to leaves which become nutrients for the soil. It's a feature of cold climates that every winter life dies. The leaves fall from the trees and into the soil, or at least stop growth. And the soil will retain the carbon from the leaves for up to 5,000 years. So when we clear forests in those climates, we have inherited a tremendous amount of humus in the soil. And that's the reason why agriculture has to concentrate on the humus in the soil in those areas. I came from traditional farming families and we'd cared for soils for over 200 years. But in the period from 1950 to 1990, most of those soils were destroyed. In 1951, I saw the first chainsaw. In 1953, we saw the modern tractor arrive. By 1954, many farmers were pouring phosphate all over their fields. We didn't have to worry about the soil anymore. We were in charge of fertility. In the 50s, therefore, we declared war on the soil. We were using just that equipment we would have used had we gone to war. Heavy machinery, crawler tractors, biocides, poison gas, the lot. I'd like to take you to meet somebody who still uses natural systems to create soils. I've known him for 40 years and he didn't start out rich. Bert Farquhar has a huge property. By looking after soils wherever he farmed, he's become wealthy. You get a thousand pound weight of sheep or cattle above an acre of ground and you get about 
2,000 pound weight of live animals underneath it. I think it's worms anyway here. Yeah, we get a divot out. Is this the right one? That's what I'd like. Yes, this is Alabophorus collegianosa. That's right, yes. <laughs> the worms, of course, uh, do uh, enrich the soil enormously. You can get up to 70% increased production on new soil or an average of 25% on old soil, and that's enormous. That's, that's huge production, that is. While farmers all around Bert spent a fortune on fertilisers and equipment, Bert never followed that road. He's always been an organic farmer and he's always used natural methods. And Bert's adopted some simple methods to spread worms to the less fertile parts of his property. Yes, I think we'll, barren. Put, we'll put them in this area. You always put the grass down on top of the other grass. Right. So as, the, so as that will rot and give the worms a good chance. Right. And then you have to put about a square metre of lime or dolomite over it. All around. All around it. So that does, does the pH bit for me. So right. if you put them every 10 metres apart, right. in seven years the whole paddock will be completely covered at the rate of four millions an acre. The difference between a good and a bad farmer is really applied observation. Someone who merely powers their way through the situation is neither as clever nor will they end up as well off as somebody who closely observes the interrelationship between trees, animals and plants. We have some, I think it must be nearly 50 billion worms working, you know, seven days a week, 24 hours a day without any overtime and no holiday pay or anything like this, all working for nothing. So. That's pretty good. If you can get 50 billion people or workers working for you for nothing, well, you're going pretty well. And they, the worms enjoy it, and, and so everyone's happy. This is a high plateau of Tasmania where we come in winter to snare wallabies. This is where many of us, when we were young, came up here in the winter for game hunting. And well, you can't be a vegetarian, you've got to be a carnivore. And uh, it's a terrible climate, and I'm really pleased I'm living in the tropics. Conserving energy is essential in cold climates, and we need to pay particular attention to that in our design. Well, it's the cold day. It is cold spring day in southern Australia, in Victoria. David Holman's place, he's just raking his lawn. He's still a friend of mine despite the fact he's got a lawn. And he's built this uh, really excellent energy efficient house because design is at least as much about architecture as it is about gardens. Not a lot in the garden at the end of winter, but there's still a plentiful s supply of carrots and uh, always something to make a, a salad and a soup. And he's integrated garden and house and it's a low energy house, made out of mud, mud brick. Well, it is a bitterly cold day and it feels frosty and it's time to go into a, a warm solar heated home. Yes, it is a lot warmer in here. I'll take off my jacket, I think. Normally you use a solar energy to heat the house, but you can also use it for cooling. The way the cupboard works is that it draws the air in from under the floor where the 
the air is at just the temperature of the earth all year round and it drafts through the wire baskets and out through a flue pipe in the roof. It's ideal for dairy products, ideal for most fruit and vegetables, which means you don't really need a fridge or only need a very small fridge. And of course that's very significant in terms of uh, CFCs that are attacking the ozone layer. When I came to designing for a climate like this, had to think fairly carefully given the amount of cloudy and very cold weather. You've got the glazing that allows the sun in and the greenhouse is really the most important element in that design. The thermal mass of the walls is very important to store the heat for the periods when there isn't sun. The sun on the wall is a medium width at the moment and in the summer it's reduced to nothing whereas in the winter it's a very wide band of um, light falling on the wall. An energy efficient house like David's is not only cheap to run but creates very little pollution. So every way we can save or recycle energy is very important in what we do. All the systems we inhabit require energy whether it's just a house or a farm or a town. And the only question is, can we conserve enough energy over the lifetime of the system? And can we give enough yield to offset the energy that we use to establish those systems? So we'll go and see a farm in Germany where methods of recycling energy are being developed and where even the financial systems are being slowly made recyclable. This is the Sun House and or Sun House near uh, Munich. And uh, it'll be on this and adjoining uh, properties that we'll look at the work of the Swiceworth Foundation. Now the main interest here is that everything produced on the property, the meat, the wheat, is processed here and turned into a variety of products. So it's a farm whose main interest is it tries to integrate the chain from uh, production to market. So, greens from the fields, clover and later on comfrey and fresh grasses are fed to the pigs and they also partly rain. Then the waste from the pigs is scraped down and falls into this pit and there are cables there that carry it along. Most of it goes into tanks for biogas which can be used for processing the meats and the sludge can be taken out to grow clover. So you can set up a sort of a cycle system. Now these are so-called flow forms. They're developed uh, by the Verbella Institute in, in England. And they're intended to oxygenate polluted water systems. Here we have water polluted with uh, a silage uh, runoff. And uh, by running it through these complicated oxygenation systems, you can raise the oxygen level, make it suitable for fish, or make it more suitable for uh, cleaning it up to take to forests or pastures. By using these quite beautiful and functional art forms, we can turn polluted water into trout and also create a pleasant environment to contemplate. By grouping the butchery, the bakery, the cheese making and a restaurant on the property, Carl Swiceworth has saved a lot of costs. 
But Carl not only saves costs, he also saves pollution. Pollution is just unused waste. The foundation sells directly to the consumer. Food produced on the farm is 30% more expensive than it is in the supermarket. But when you buy food from the supermarket, you don't pay for the pollution that's caused in its production. It's an education to people to come to the farm, see the healthy farm all around them and the clean processing systems. They can then appreciate they're buying a food that hasn't damaged the earth. There's a great variety of vegetables and cheese being packaged here in small lots, which go to about 40 families in Munich, distributed by the housewives in Munich. And so by directly marketing from the farm and then setting up this local distribution system, the farm closes off the cycle from production to distribution. Linking the city to the farm is one strategy by which people can make sure of good food. But next we will go right into the cities and see how we can manage to do that in the city itself. Permaculture really starts with an ethic, earth care, that's care of the whole systems of earth and the species. So we actually devise model systems. Much of the design is drawn from nature. The end result that we aim for is to produce a system that's ecologically sound and economically profitable. It can get as sophisticated or as simple as you like. A city like New York has only one product, it's, it's garbage and feces. And if we sit here, we can watch barge after barge load of fertiliser uh, proceeding to be dumped at sea. 
and if it was returned to source and used on the land to produce the food for New York, uh, then it would be no pollution. But when we dump it at sea, it wipes out 700 square miles of ocean per year. So you can see the only product of New York is shit, and it actually is used to kill parts of the sea. built nothing so unsustainable as cities. We can only remedy this if we produce the food consumed by the cities in the cities. We'll start by looking at some of the wastelands and what can be done with them. There's hundreds, probably thousands of acres of wasteland in the cities like New York. And depends on the city authorities to whether these are turned into food for the people of the city or whether those options are closed off and uh, common sense would dictate that all space now in the city be kept open and given over to people for their own gardens. City authorities don't willingly give up space, so coalitions like the Green Gorillas form to force them to give space for gardens. So there's a considerable voting block in support of this garden at City Hall. The garden was founded by only five green gorillas, and now 150 families use the garden, and it's visited by many other people in the district. Um, this is uh, some of the peppers that are still coming up. We have an um, eggplant over here, a white eggplant. We don't use any pesticides here. Uh, we'll put in, uh, we have praying mantis and ladybugs. Yeah. Um, we do use some BT and stuff like that rather than, you know, using chemicals. Most people would know these as allotments and they are the most productive use of landscape for food in the world and they're what kept European countries alive during wars. Even in a city like New York, there are hundreds and probably thousands of city farms. There was about 1,100 here a year or two back. And uh, so many people are involved in, in part-time farming or production. And also there's a lot of community gardens to which a lot of people have access and which give at least a breathing space in the city. City farms are all built on what everybody else throws away. They all have small recycling centres, all their soil is compost, and they have innovative uses for the other things that people throw away. is uh, Eric sculpture in New York. It's from Objects Through Bay. And it's very like the Watts Towers uh, down in Los Angeles. It's uh, a great thing to have in any community garden. It's full of interest. There's a million people live in this situation. I met Ray Walden, who was in one of the groups that took over these gardens when it was wasteland and brought in soil to get it going. Ray's an invalid pensioner, but he gets food all year from this garden. I'd say I take a shopping bag of uh, tomatoes and peppers and that sort of thing out at least once a week. We've been uh, very fortunate in that. And, of course, the thing is that you have something, it's always different, you know, according to the time of the growing season. But we get things as early as in April, and, you know, greens and that sort of thing. We're getting uh, crops right through 
Well, we've been here since 83. We've been getting mostly through December. Right about then, we'll get a good killing frost. It'll take it all. And uh, then you collect what's on the vine, and that's the end of that season. But you start early again. You start in February and, you know, start eating again in April. <laughs> These little farm blocks are very much more than gardens. They are social and neighbourhood centres. Young mothers come and they have picnics with their children. People come for small parties. And the elderly come here to rest and get away from the city for a while. There are people in wheelchairs and people with a bad arthritis who can't bend down the garden, or people with bad backs. And it's better to raise the bed up like this about top of the thigh. And uh, here's all their fruit and everything at waist level or at wheelchair level. You can, you can build it up like this and fill it with earth. In this case, I had to do that because there isn't any dirt on the ground. And, uh, or you can build this on top of ordinary tables using mulch, just a straw mulch, and people can garden in that. So it doesn't matter which way you go about it, but these raised beds are really important to old people. The only rare resource in the city is space, and when we get it, we have to make the most use of it. Well, in urban areas, there are two ways you can stack in more fruit. One is to use dwarf or semi-dwarf fruit trees, and a few of those here, plums and apricots. And the other one is to make a fence out of your fruit trees as an espalier. And underneath the grapes here, there's espalier apples, which just go along like rails. And as they get older, you graft one into the other, and you actually make a a fence out of apples and pears. So that takes up hardly any room at all for production. So there's several ways you can capitalise on space. Well, in the city farms, and in fact in all urban areas, uh, vertical space is really important. And with vines, you can convert the whole wall into grape production or kiwi production. But the other thing about the vines is that they're active insulators. The hotter it gets, the more they sweat, the cooler the shadow gets inside the vine. And the colder it gets, the more they close down their air systems. So they prevent the entry of 70% of excess summer heat, and they prevent the escape of 40% of your winter uh, warmth. So they're really doing a fine job as insulators on these walls. What's more, with a brick wall in good condition, They'll preserve it about 200 years longer than it would be without vines. Beautiful grapes too. So you can see that, you know, it's not just gardening, it's design, and design for lowering energy inputs. Most city farm can have livestock, but the one most commonly kept is the bee. And if you put the hive above people's heads, then we clear the flight path and Hopefully we won't get stung. But all city farms can have bees, and many have other small domestic animals. So this is a rare honey label, pure Manhattan honey. Maybe one day we'll see Sixth Street tacos, you know, Fourth Street corn. Who knows? Depends on the city.
springtime in Melbourne, and we're in a city farm called Ceres for a very large number of children. This is the only chance they ever get to handle animals and to find out where milk comes from, all sorts of simple things. That's nice. You're going to take good care. What are you going to feed it on? Vitamins? <laughs> More milk? What else? City farms are primarily community educational centres and the skills taught range from simple things like planting a tree to complex things like designing an energy efficient home. This house is about as typical in its structural form as, as any house around the district and it was moved in here to show how many ways you can make inexpensive additions to the house to heat and cool it and to produce the hot water and that's 80% of energy. It does a little better than that and as time goes on it gets a little more efficient. And it's just a few uh, solar additions here and there. In the Western world cities we're totally accustomed to limitless water and information and space is uh, not so restricted but in the third world space is very restricted and water is uh, not piped necessarily to your house so we have to be very careful and innovative about the way we go about gardening. Here we are on Professor Aurora's roof in the city of Hyderabad with his wife Ira who's made a little garden up here which provides quite a lot of food, fresh food for them both. We'll go and meet Ira. Hello, Ira. <laughs> your garden's looking very good this year. We were interested in your watering system, which is, oh, yes. I think, the most efficient system. Because it wastes the least water of all, I think, in dry areas. Here in the Aurora's rooftop garden, Ira sunk pots, and she fills them every few days. They seep out slowly through the unglazed clay and keep all the plants alive in the garden. I think this is the best watering system, really, as far as dryland goes, and as far as saving water, the Malabar spinach. What do you call the Malabar spinach? Pui. Pui. Pui, in Bengali. Yeah, well, that's a shorter name, huh? Yes, and it doesn't need any care at all. No, it's marvellous. It just, when it wants to grow, it will grow all over. And here, you, I see we've already, we've got a, yes, a custard apple, huh? Yes. And you've had some from the tree. We've eaten uh, about four, four yeah. or five. This is the first season that it's growing. Oh, that's great. Mm. But, I, but I think extends the roof is the tall trees around the edges, you know? Yes. We go and have a look at some of the passion fruit. And yes. Yeah, well, this, but this passion fruit has made it right up yes. to the top. Did you do that? No. It came on its own. Yeah, it... How could I do that? <laughs> you never know. No, you don't know where there are one. But there's some ripe ones just down near the yes, window. Yes. Yeah. If we leave the dense situation of Hyderabad, where the rooftops are the logical place to garden, and go to the suburbs of Africa, we'll see that a lot of space is available between houses, both for trees and gardens. In Harare, we have very crowded working people's houses. One of the real problems we get around housing, um, where there's malaria problem, is that the bath water or the washing water is so rich in, in potash and nutrients that this is an ideal mosquito breeding place. And a couple of years ago, mosquitoes were very bad here. We had problems because they were 
flying all over. And what we decided to do is to build this um, thing to catch the water from the outside tap and the bathroom tap and will lead us to this pit which we dug. So what happens, all the water from the tap and the grey water from the bathroom will run into here. So instead of just um, spreading and just being exposed to it's being used by the by the plants to grow. Also, it's, it's, there is well drained, so it percolates into the um, ground. You can see the bananas and sugar canes, and we've grown a lot of different things. Like any good third world city, there's a market just down the road. Every item in these markets is either gathered from the bush or produced in the small gardens around the market or on small farms very close to Harare. That's good. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, very much. Thank you very much. What about you, madam? There's a huge variety of plant and animal materials in this part of the market with the medicine men. Uh, most of the stuff here is for uh, sexual problems or love potions to attract customers, to keep devils away. But there's also some very specific medicines. Uh, use earths, roots, parts of animals, dried parts of animals, preserved parts of animals. All sorts of materials here, you couldn't enumerate them. And no doubt there's some people here with very specific knowledge, but most people have it for magic, I think. You are in somewhere when you are yeah, the skin. Yeah, the skin. Skin problems. Yeah, skin problems. This, this is a squill, and it's uh, very good for skin problems and itching. So this is quite a specific medicine. And in actual fact, not far from the market, it's a very large garden and orchard. There's pawpaws and bananas and mangoes and avocados. A lot of green vegetables. Uh, it's a nice atmosphere. I think people would rather live here in poor houses with lots of food than in the uh, upper-class suburb with a lawn. I know I would. So uh, there's a considerable amount of food right through the whole settlements of Harare that aren't following the Western model. food are becoming very uncertain resources in the near future and we can build them all into human settlements if we want to or we can build settlements uh, which take no account of any of these human needs. On one side of the road is a rather bare subdivision and on this side of the road is village homes. Village Homes was the first and is probably still the best developed attempt at an ecological village and it's in the city of Davis in the United States. It's really extremely simple but extremely sophisticated at once. It's designed by Michael Corbett. The houses are very close together east-west. They're just uh, maybe 20 feet apart. But each row of houses sit on a rise on either side of a, a hollow. And the hollow is called a swale. It was Mike Corbett who 
revived that name from the old English. And so all water off the roof, all water off the roads and the paths run into the swales all the year and is absorbed. And I think the figures for the first few years went, we got a foot of water absorbed and then we got about two and a bit feet, I think, and then 17 feet in the third year. So that uh, once you've got 17 feet of water saturation under here, you know you can grow trees without additional watering once their roots are down. So most of these trees are on the water from the swales. And then many of the trees are food-bearing trees on the little public paths. This is a jujube, which naturally dries on the tree. It's a Chinese date. This is a good one. Um, and you can store this as long as you like. I've been eating one or two and keeping the pips. But, uh, yeah, this is a pretty good one. Here in the uh, settlement, as the trees have grown, the houses have also grown in value. Till now, they're worth five times their original cost. But just over the fence are houses that look like the American dream with swimming pools, lawns, dogs and garages. But the owners have to pay energy costs and all their food costs. And so their houses are worth 30% less now than the houses in village homes. Throughout village home, there are strips of public open space and this one's all planted to fruit trees. It's pomegranates and citrus, mulberries and grapes. And there's enough grapes for people to make, for the public to make wine, really, and for the public to eat grapes. So um, there's a high density, you've got to remind yourself all the time here that we're in a high density settlement. And the food is just, uh, really, it's a hand's reach away. So, uh, you know, all the costs of transport are gone, all the costs of wastage is gone. People here can make their own wines, they make their own tacos from the corn, and uh, some people here grow more and sell it. So some, some people here can make their living from growing or preserving food. It just makes a lot of common sense. This place only gets 18 inches of rain, and anybody would classify that as dry. But this town is cool, lush and green. In all western cities, a fortune is spent on stormwater drains to export the clean rainwater out of the settlement. But here the water is soaked into the ground and the money saved is spent on trees. Last year they sold seven tonnes of almonds, for example, and the money goes to maintaining the gardens. When I was working in South Melbourne, the city engineer said to me, we were always taught never to plant useful trees in public open space. And he said, and now I wonder why we were taught that. And of course, when you see public open space fully used for trees, we must all wonder why we don't do it, because every city in the world can provide its own food at a very low cost. in village homes, I met an old, old friend, David Katz. He and his wife, Karen, and their kids have been here from the very beginning. Can't move from here because the kids don't want to leave. And it's, it's a great neighborhood for kids. Uh, it's nice to have a place where the, uh, there's, there's real neighborhood. There's other people looking after the kids or aware of what's going on. And the kids could go out the door from 
or wee toddlers on up and, and make their own friends and really control their own life to a great degree that we don't have to, you don't have to worry about them and run their life as much and makes it things easier for us and it's a lot better for them. It's been really fun because um, there's no through traffic and you can play in the streets and there's lots of, there's lots of fruit so there's like almost something, um, something on the trees all, all year long so like summer there's peaches and during the fall there's pomegranates and grapes and it's been, that's been fun and it's also been fun just to have the like big green fields and being able to go chasing the grapevines and also just being able to ride away and go downtown. They know the whole place so much better than we do. They know everyone's, uh, what everyone's backyard is like, where their gates are, how the windows work and where the, uh, uh, the secret spots are. They play tag for hours, even the big ones do. Um, and no one can find them there. <laughs> And I, I imagine every kid around here has gotten involved in, in uh, the commerce of the place in terms of the little girls in the neighborhood. There are only five or six, there's three or four that pick little bouquets and uh, pedal them door to door, just uh, for mostly, I think, for the fun of it. And there's just uh, such a cornucopia of fruit and all this other stuff that I think it's occurred to all of them one time or another to try to do something with it. Uh, they get a real appreciation for it and actually uh, know a ripe fruit from one that's not and, and uh, develop a surprising knowledge about all these kinds of plants. And they don't, they're not even aware of it. And, uh, so that's nice, too. You know, but the one thing we never really appreciated was the fact of how much freedom we got out of the situation. Um, just like right now, uh, house it's cool there's not much noise gets in there and uh, I have permission to go walk on the roof which is great mm. well this is here I am at the chimney of Jim and Donna's house you know this is the sort of roof I really like it it's always pretty but it never needs painting it's always uh, different colors with the flowers and the foliage and it's, uh, Donna's down there, but she can't really hear me up here, so it's pretty soundproof. Uh, and I remember this when it was a short herb garden. Now it's looking like a forest, seven years later. Houses here are built to be energy efficient. The whole settlement's built to be energy efficient. Here, the windows to the south, the solar windows, are shaded this time of year both by grapes and by awnings, so we don't get a lot of direct sunlight and heat in when we don't want it. Well, soon it'll be winter, and the sun goes low, comes through these windows, and falls on these uh, innocuous blocks, which are actually steel tanks, which will be filled with water come the winter, 
and that absorbed the heat and radiated at night into the living area and the kitchen area and out here. So everything's quite passive. In this sort of environment, it's typical for the envelope of the house to merge into the garden almost uh, without any abrupt gradation. So you're sort of inside, partly outside, outside, and, uh, you know, most of the things around us out here are food anyhow. an economic botanical garden here. We have plums, cherries, grapes, peaches, pomegranates, citrus, quinces, uh, what else? Well, it's just off, and it's, I can see a banana, like passion fruits. Quinces, for instance, you never cook a rabbit without you use a quince. I can see a rhinoceros. <laughs> Home's a bit of a trap for me. I think I've been here every year since it was built and I wasted thousands of, of films on it because it, it's just the best thing since sliced bread. I, it's the nicest place, I think, in the world for human settlements. episode and want to hear more like it you can do three simple things right now one you can subscribe to permaculture freedom podcast if you haven't yet number two you can leave a short review for us on itunes and third share this episode with a person in your life you think would enjoy it too thank you i really appreciate your support until next time take care my friend